Hey Junkions, this episode is brought to you by Fun Size Horror, a free online platform for original and user-submitted horror shorts. Because if there's one thing horror fans know, it's that if we can't find good stuff in the theaters, we're going to take it in the shorts. If you're a filmmaker looking for a place to share your film and grow your audience, go to funsizehorror.com. Submitted films can be eligible for promotions, contests, and distribution. Follow Fun Size Horror on Twitter, at Fun Size Horror, and like them on Facebook, also at Fun Size Horror, conveniently enough. And stay up to date on the latest releases, contests, and promotions. Hey everybody, this episode is also brought to you by Rogue One, out on Blu-ray. From Lucasfilm comes the first of the Star Wars standalone films, Rogue One, a Star Wars story, an epic adventure. If you don't know what it's about, you know those Death Star plans? People want them, and other people are trying to get them. The Blu-ray comes with the Blu-ray disc, DVD, digital copy, and more special features than you can shake a droid at. More cushion for the pushing. I don't know, we, we haven't workshopped the jokes for this one. Star Wars fans and those nerdy for the Dirty Dozen need Rogue One in their collection. The Disney Blu-ray is out today. Buy it from our links on the FSR page to support the show. Star Wars! This is Junk Food Cinema. Junkions to a hot new episode of Junk Food Cinema right here on FilmSchoolRejects.com. Dot com? Dot com. This is the weekly cult and exploitation film cast. So good, it just has to be fattening. I am Brian Salisbury, joined as per usual by my friend and co-host. He is a novelist, screenwriter, and lieutenant of Megaforce, Mr. C. Robert Cargill. Yes. What is up, sir? What is up is I'm super excited. I just got back from my vacation in Chattanooga at the which, Chattanooga Film Festival. The Chattanooga Film Festival sounds amazing, but the sentence, I just got back from a vacation in Chattanooga, is not one I hear very often. No, uh, because people don't realize what an amazing town Chattanooga is. They are, uh, they are the Austin of the East. They're just uh, much smaller, but they've got this adorable little town center with tons of amazing food and they have this plucky little film festival that is filled with all these awesome people and who are uh there's a lot of by the way a lot of junkies out there i met nice at least a dozen junkies this weekend if not more if i did not get to talk to you while i was there i'll see you guys there next year i had so much fun uh we had a summer of 87 uh, event out there uh, that was great. Uh, we uh, did a live reading of a film that we'll be talking about later this summer that with participants like Aaron be- uh, uh, Aaron Benson and Justin uh, Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead and uh, Joe Lynch and Adam Green uh, and myself and uh, a number of other festival uh, uh, producers and uh, uh, film folk uh, where we put on summer school. And and played uh, 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 we 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 did a live reading of summer school that uh, uh, went off the rails in the most beautiful ways. Again, sentences you don't hear very often. No, it, it was just it was it was a gr- an amazing time. So if you live anywhere in that area next April, put it on your radar to go to Chattanooga. I will be there. I will be dragging Brian, kicking and screaming. I want to go. I <laughs> I want to go to this film festival. It definitely will happen. Let's one hundred. Let's just say there was intimations that they very much wanted us to do a live 
junk food cinema out there. So oh. that may be something that happens next week, uh, next year. If you want to find more of what it is that we do, it's not pretty, but we do it. You can find our back catalog on Stitcher as well as on iTunes. And while you're there, why not leave us a review? Uh, I wanted to read one here real quickly. Um, we've been getting a lot more of them recently, probably because I've been begging you to do so. Please and I appreciate go it. give it. You do have it. no idea what this means to the algorithm. Uh, I really liked this short but sweet one uh, from reviewer Rob L. Love this show. So out there, yet not. I don't know what that means, but I love it. Thank you for leaving that review. Thank you, man. We appreciate it. And also uh, Twitter at Junk Food Cinema. And you can like the podcast on Facebook, Facebook.com slash Junk Food Cinema. And if you really like the show, Patreon.com slash Junk Food Cinema is a great way to directly support us and make sure that we can keep the lights on and keep doing this show that you love. We are breaking out the sunscreen, the charcoal, and the outdoor projector because it's once again time for one junkie summer. Fucking one junkie summer. It's back! It's back. Summer of 87, bitches. We are so excited. Look, okay, so here's the thing. Last summer, the theme was the changing times. Mm -hmm. You know, this was the death of big budget genre. This was where uh, genre kind of got gutted, where it was, you know, for up until 86, it was almost pure genre every weekend. And, you know, uh, the, the, the train had breaks, it slowed on down, and we went into much more realism. That's not to say we don't have great junk food this summer. That's not to say we don't have some great genre peppered in here, but it's not as much genre as there was in 86. So 82 is great and is one of is considered not only one of the best summers of the 80s but one of the best summers of all time. A lot of other people argue 84, which also a great year. What's not often argued and what I've discovered this weekend is mostly forgotten is just how incredible and densely packed a summer 1987 is. And when I recommended it, I thought we would find a dozen good titles to talk about. We have to make cuts this summer. Mm -hmm. Every week, there is something fucking amazing coming out in the summer of 87. Uh, Or it's a week that's kind of like, ah, this is chaff. And then you have a weekend with three classics. Like, Mm -hmm. there are so many great movies. We are going to be running this all the way through September. So, yes, we are going to talk about the biggest, the best, our deep fried favorite films of 1987 here, a whopping 30 years removed. And you may recall, as Cargill was mentioning, that we did this last year for the summer of 86. But we're doing things a little different this time around. Yeah, last year what we did was we were like, you know, we don't know that our audience particularly wants to listen to us talk about a film that they've seen a hundred times like a hundred times like aliens. And what we found out was no, actually, assholes. That is kind of some of the stuff you want us to talk about. I we were we were like, ah, this a podcast where people like obscure stuff. And as it turns out, no, you like occasional obscure stuff yeah so uh so then we, we were, noticed our most popular episode of all time was tombstone yes so yeah so it was kind of like <laughs> oh all right and this is this is how you do it you, yep. you throw shit at the wall and see what sticks and uh so we kept like all our you know like aliens and ferris bueller and things like that we kept a lot of that stuff uh for pa- uh patrons because we knew our patrons will you know just like listening to us talk and ramble on and you know yeah sure let's talk about aliens for 30 minutes so no what we're doing this time around is we are talking we're mixing it up we're talking about all of that and instead we're gonna also do uh, for patrons, a special 
uh, 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 series called Summer of 77. As if one summer running series wasn't enough for general listeners, we are doing, as Kirkle mentioned, a completely separate miniseries on the Summer of 77 that will be available to patrons at all levels. Yeah, so if, you want, uh, if you're if you willing to throw in a buck a week, you can get uh, a, a new episode. You get a you get a bonus episode every week. We're going to be doing a, uh, a, a different movie every two weeks. That way we can still fit in the mailbags and the all the modes mm-hmm. uh, so we can review some of the summer movies and answer your questions. And of course, if you're a patron, you can ask us whatever and we just ramble on about it but we uh, think about it guys summer 77 we're talking about one of the coolest weekends of all time we're talking star wars and sorcerer uh and we've got a i love this show that we can say with a straight face and with no shred of irony Star Wars and Sorcerer is one of the greatest movie weekends of all time. Why would it, it not be? Is because most people have no two, idea what Sorcerer is to begin with. Two perfect films. If you had a two theater screen, two screen theater in your town, and both of those movies opened, you could not lose that weekend. You could not lose. If you were an all-consuming movie geek, that weekend should get you so turgid. So that's so turgid. So that is uh, that's going to be two weekends in May for us, and then we've got a whole bunch. Of other ones, of course, it's not going to be as densely packed as '87 because it's pre-multiplex. Like, yeah, it, there were not multiplexes on every corner, so the you know there's about a dozen really good junkie movies worth talking about. Summer of '77, while like we literally we made a list and we got to 28 really junk food worthy uh, uh, films to talk about, and we cut that down to I think. 23 maybe, maybe. And, and that's just before we start auditioning other ones so but okay so between we had 18 solid and we've yeah. got like eight maybes and yeah. we're gonna figure out from there but i mean we're, we're talking about an entire summer we've got matthew broderick with a monkey we've got cheech <laughs> marin stranded in mexico we've got fucking robocop and predator and this is just this is a summer to behold you will not believe how much great junk food you forgot came out in the same summer. And dear God, everyone is a winner in its own way. And this week is no exception with the Shane Black classic, the one that kicked off his entire idiom, Lethal Weapon. He's a criminal's worst nightmare. A cop who enjoys the danger. No guns, no jujitsu, just bring him down. Do you really want to jump? Well, then that's fine with me. Come on. Wait, I what do you mean? Do Wait a minute. What the hell? He was ready to retire. Now, he's going to wish he had. Raj, meet your new partner. New partner? <laughs> if these guys can just stand each other. What you got in there? Boy and Smith? A lot of old timers carry those. The bad guys don't stand a chance. Don't kill anybody. Don't kill anybody. Suppose we better register you as a lethal weapon. You ever met anybody you didn't kill? Well, I haven't killed you yet. Oddly enough, one of the weirder ones we're going to talk about. This one feels straightforward. People, the 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 Lethal Weapon series has become so ingrained in the fabric of of film geek culture, we kind of forgot where it originated, and it's kind of fucking weird. 
Yeah. Yes, the original version of the movie. Uh, the fact that this is not the first buddy cop film by a long shot. No. And yet, it is the buddy cop film. It is the exemplar buddy cop film. Yeah. When they make buddy cop movies after this, they're making Lethal Weapon again. Despite the fact that five years before this, in 82, we had 48 Hours. We had Walter Hill making a great buddy cop movie. But about 10 years before that, we had Freebie and the Bean. Exactly. And just go back and back and back. This is a formula that has worked. But Shane Black is somebody who took that formula and redeveloped it. Went all goodwill hunting on it. And all of a sudden, we got something that even though we'd seen it before, we felt like we had never seen it before. And Shane Black is somebody who has repeated this formula time and again. And every single one of his movies is exactly like the one that came before it. And yet, he tweaks it in just the right way that we don't give a shit. And we love and get excited about each and every one. It's always about, you know... Uh, 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 a lovable loser mm -hmm. and peer paired up with someone uptight and talented. Yeah. And like I said, during our last Boy Scout episode, Shane Black is a, is a writer that I love because he writes what I call cruddy cop movies because one, at least one of the characters in the team is desperately and completely broken and at the end of their rope. And that to me... And it, broke and a slob. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that is obviously who we get with Martin Riggs, played by Mel Gibson, um, who, oh, oh, God, I love it so much. I love that we're early enough in history, in the history of his career, that Mel Gibson is playing an American and still has that fucking accent. It is still there, hanging in the air like a boomerang, just waiting to come back in the next take. Oh, my God, it makes me laugh every time when Martin Riggs just slip like... You can hear it. You can hear it, and it's it's as uh, as pungent as a slice of bread with Vegemite on it. And uh, as per usual, folks, it's a Shane Black movie, so it's also a Christmas movie. Oh, God, yes. And man, is this a Christmas movie. It starts at the beginning of Christmas season. It goes through L.A. Christmas, and the movie even ends on Christmas Eve. Yeah. And it is, or maybe, like they don't actually, like it kind of depending on how you look at it. Yeah, it's they don't, this is not happening in real time other than it's the Christmas season. Uh, we know it's prior to New Year's because the daughter talks about having a New Year's dress, but we never see her go to that party. But that's it. That's as concrete as the timetable is in this film is Christmas season. That's where it's taking place. That's where we have... Detective Roger Murtaugh turning the big 5-0. I'm too old for this shit. His family comes in. They have this big thing for his birthday. He's dealing with the fact that he's getting older and not really knowing what to do with himself. And he is called in to investigate the suicide of a young girl. The movie opens with one of probably the most iconic opening deaths in the 80s, which is a young girl does a bump of cocaine. And to Jingle Bell Rock. To Jingle Bell Rock, and then immediately climbs up onto the balcony and jumps off onto a car below. That is the murder that Roger Murtaugh is investigating. And I love this. God, there are points when a Shane Black script, especially the, some of the Lethal Weapon movies, the dialogue and the character interaction is coming so effortlessly, so counter to cinematically that it almost feels like a John Cassavetti's movie. Like, are we supposed to be hearing this? Are we a fly on the wall catching snippets of conversations that were never meant for us? Because that's a lot of, like, it's not that you miss things. It's not that dialogue is mumbled. It's not that dialogue is directed away from the action. 
but it's just coming so effortlessly and this environment is so lived in that it feels like we're intruding. And I mean that as a compliment. Like it's and and so early in this conversation around the Murtaugh household, you hear his wife say something about, oh, uh, someone named Hunsacker called for you. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I haven't seen him since the war. But it's not it's not given the same weight. And hey, everyone, put a pin in this obviousness that you would see in other movies. And that's a very important point that we need to put, uh, we need to, to stop at for a moment. This is a post Vietnam war movie. This is a movie entirely filled with characters damaged by the war. Mm-hmm. Both the heroes and the villains yep. of this movie are Vietnam war vets. Uh, and, all are dealing with what happened in Vietnam in different ways. Uh, in fact, this is one of the weirdest parts about this movie. I mentioned early on that this is weird. Here's the thing most people have forgotten about Lethal Weapon. They've forgotten how fucked up Martin Riggs is. They remember that he's suicidal. But something that's never dealt with again in the series is that Martin Riggs was an assassin for the government. He was a sniper going on black ops missions and killing people and he's one of the best snipers in the world yeah and he has a moment where he talks about killing a Viet Cong kid from a thousand yards away that maybe eight or ten guys in the world could make that shot this is what is resting on this guy's shoulders the entire time it's the only thing I was ever good at is one of the most emotionally damaging pieces of dialogue in any film yeah no it is here's a guy who is supposed to be a great cop and it's like no he's not a great cop he's great at killing people yes that's all he's fucking good at um and we see that throughout this movie and in deleted scenes uh that are uh woven into the director's cut uh there's a uh there was a small period of time in which director richard donner who of course we haven't even mentioned yet well we've not mentioned a lot of people behind the scenes on this yet oh no and we'll get there but richard donner of course um, this is kind of late in his perfect run, like at up, you know, he, at this point, he, he was already a master. He had done the omen. He had done Superman. He had done Superman too. He had done the Goonies. Um, and now he's doing lethal weapon. He, uh, you know, he just has this great run of like, holy shit, this guy is making classic movies, like epic classic movies. And uh, and this one's no different. And he went through a period of time when he started doing director's cuts of his movies. And he did a director's cut of this. And I sat down to watch it for the first time last night. I mean, I'm intimately familiar with this film. I'm a huge, as you guys know, I'm a huge Shane Black fan. Uh, I don't think there's a Shane Black film I haven't watched a dozen times in my life. Uh, and uh, And I had never watched this cut. And this cut drives home his damage even more. Uh, in, in fact, there's a famous scene that you can find on YouTube where it's even more on the nose, where Riggs goes, when he goes out on the call early in the morning, he's got a, um, uh, instead of just going to the drug deal, he's got a call he goes to before that. There's a sniper taking shots at kids in a schoolyard and kids are getting shot. Jesus, and, and that's the, like Dirty Harry. The police are pinned down and... This is why I'm sure it was cut from the movie. The dialogue here and the actual scene is so on the nose. 
Riggs just walks up. He asks a police officer, what's he shooting with? What kind of rifle is it? What's how how accurate is he? And is he aiming for specific kids or is he shooting at random? And once he figures that out, he's like, oh, I know what's up. And he just kind of strolls into the schoolyard and calls the guy out. The guy pops up with the rifle to take shots at him, takes shots at him. And everyone's like, get out of there, buddy. Get out of there. And he just waits for the shot and with his pistol shoots the fucking guy, which, of course, throughout the rest of the the movie, we have we set up just how great he is with a pistol. And he, you know, he kills the guy. And as he's walking out, uh, some police officer walks up to him, and go, you're crazy, buddy. You're suicidal. You know that? And it's kind of like. Yeah, that's kind of the point of the character, and you're not supposed to know this right now, which I get as good a scene as it is and as cool as it is. It's a little much and a little on the nose for the time, so it gets cut. We all, the, most of the other things that get cut are all things about rigs. Um, uh, it's all he he ends up throwing a bottle at his television and shattering the bottle, then apologizes to the picture of his wife and says he's going to buy her a new TV, and then comes back later in the day for the TV. Also, they set up that he has the dog from the beginning of the movie. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get the dog at the end of the movie like the the movie presents. He's had that dog the entire time. Is that how the see? That's it's interesting. I'm going to need you to take the lead on on this cut because I only saw the the theatrical cut. Yeah. Um, that's funny. I don't remember. I guess I remember the dog, but maybe I'm remembering one of the sequels where the dog's in it earlier. But yeah, it's it's one of those things that I like kind of that you as the audience member have the same decision to make about Riggs that all of his colleagues do in the theatrical cut, which is that is he really crazy? Is he really suicidal legitimately? Or is this a ploy to get on some kind of psychological pension, which is why no one will work with him. And, and Riggs spells this out. It's like, Either I'm a psycho and I'm suicidal, in which case I'm fucked and nobody wants to work with me, or I'm faking it to get on pension, in which case I'm fucked and nobody wants to work with me. So we really understand why Riggs doesn't have a partner at the beginning of this movie. Um, and I do love, oh my God, I love the opening for him at the the drug deal at the, of course it is, Christmas tree lot, yes. because it's a Shane Black script. So well, yes. of course, of course he's he's uh, undercover at a drug deal at a Christmas tree lot and proceeds to kill Everyone, um, so great. By the way, this we, almost almost everyone except uh, for a guy who uh, he he has that classic moment with where it's like no no he gets a gun to Riggs's head and Riggs is like shoot this fucker shoot him shoot and, him or and, shoot me shoot and, me and frankly I think that's the smarter way the smarter thing to open with him because he doesn't seem so outwardly suicidal until he's got the gun to his head. And even then, you don't know if he's playing psychological games or not by telling the guy to shoot him and telling everyone else to shoot this guy. Um, It's really well done, and it's really well crafted and not nearly on the nose as as that deleted scene with the sniper. Um, Actually, another great deleted scene I want to talk about before we move on that, that nails home. There's actually a deleted scene that is even more heartbreaking than the line... Um, it was the only thing I was ever good at. Riggs stops and picks up a hooker. Oh, Jesus. Yes. And she gets in and you're not quite sure what's going on. And he goes, how old are you, baby? And she says, oh, I'm 22 years old. He goes, really? Cause you look younger than that. She's like, do you want me to be younger? And he's like, yeah. How young do you want? As young as it can be. And she goes, well, then I'm 16 years old. And he goes, great. Um, and he pulls down a hundred dollar bill and gives it to her. And she's like a hundred dollars. Uh, wow, what do you want? He said, I want you to come back to my place and we're going to watch TV. He was just watch TV. He goes, yeah, this three stooges start in, t- in 20 minutes. 
She's like, whatever you want, baby. And they drive off. And he hires a woman to come and watch TV with him like his wife used to. Like, Jeez. it is just, it's just like, oh, fuck, dude. That's, that's dark. I have to believe that somebody in Shane Black's family, father, uncle, somebody, was a Vietnam War vet who was really messed up by things. Because he has an intimate level of understanding of the scars of that war and that he was too young for. He, he was, was too young to serve. He was like 22, it. 23 when he wrote the script. And he, he was still script, at USC. He wrote the script in 84 when he was 22. Yeah. So that would have made him way too young, you know, 10 years prior to serve during the Vietnam War. So somebody close to him had to have gone through that because he is way too like in the trenches of the mentality of someone who was in the trenches. Yeah, no. And of course, the thing with Riggs is that it's not just the war that fucked him up. It's that his wife has died um, in a car crash just the year before. So his anchor, the thing that kept him sane and sober uh, is gone. And so he is just a mess. And so all of that deleted stuff is just extra scenes of Martin Riggs being fucked up. Um, and, uh, and I found that fascinating. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so now we're done through, through all that. We can move on to all the other crazy shit in this movie. And speaking of crazy, uh, this movie was produced by one of a uh, friend of the show. Here you go. No, friend we of cannot the show. say that. I don't think he would ever like our show because every time his name comes up, as brilliant as he was as a producer, as many great films as he's made, you always, always have to do the impression. So let's hear it. Hello, I'm producer Joel Silver. It's very nice to meet you. I think we're going to have a wonderful time on this production that will be uh, uh, a totally drug-free. I don't think that's... Anywhere near the impression you always I, do. I find that slanderous. Uh, this is I'm Joel Silver, and this is how I am. This will be a drug-free production moving on. So, yes, Joel Silver, who is behind not only Lethal Weapon in 87, but then immediately the next year, fucking Die Hard. I mean, talk about leaps and bounds of the action genre in two years. And there's a lot of, like, weird crossover between those two movies um, that make them feel like they live in the same universe, one of which being Michael Kamen did the music for both movies, and both movies, since they take place at Christmas and have the same composer, it's a lot of jingle bells within the action score. Yep. So you get a lot of that instrument hitting you Oh yeah, at just the right time. We got Eric Clapton. Uh, doing this one has Eric Clapton as well, which is awesome. Uh, and then the other thing is that you see a lot of actual cast members from Die Hard in Lethal Weapon, including, um, God, I hate that she's gone from this universe, Mary, Mary Ellen Trainer, who we is a junk food alum from Monster Squad. She was also the mom, not only in Monster Squad, but in Goonies, the movie that a lot of people get confused with Monster Squad. And she's Gail Wallens, the newscaster in Die Hard. And Grandel Bush, who plays one of the two detect or one of the two uh, Agent Johnsons in Die Hard, is in this movie as well. As is the the Chinese member of Hans Gruber's gang who plays Endo in this movie, the guy who electrocutes Martin Riggs. So just all over this movie, it's like, oh, oh yeah, no, he uh, he's uh, he was a stuntman. Al Leung, yeah, yeah, Al Leung was a famous stuntman who uh, had such charisma that they would start giving him lines, and so yeah, he's got a lot of great moments in Die Hard, and he's got that the the great scene here. Also, uh, oddly, there's a lot of crossover with another junk food cinema movie we love, which is Tango. Cash. This movie was also edited by Stuart Baird. Stuart Baird, by the way, 
was uh, I was going to bring him up because he edited mo- he was Richard Donner's editor. And Richard Don, uh, he edited all of Richard Donner's stuff and then would go on to be a director in his own right and direct three films, uh, most of which wouldn't do so great. Uh, and then would, uh, uh, like, he started with Executive Decision. Uh, which I feel like, I've, I'll be honest with you, save your gasps, but I've never seen Executive Decision. Oh, Oh, you haven't lived until you <laughs> until you watched that ponytailed motherfucker get sucked out of a fucking plane. What? Oh my what, god! How, can, how is how is there a Kurt Russell movie wait, you've never wait, seen? Wait, Steven Seagal dies in that movie? I'm just kidding. Of course, I know that. Uh, well, then he follows that up with U.S. Marshals, <laughs> which I like. I know a lot of people hate on that movie. I like it quite a it's bit. It's good. It's perfectly solid. But later in the 80s, Stuart Baird would be the guy that you... He was the Winston Wolf of editors. He was the guy they called in to clean up messes. Oh, yeah. and he Like cl- Tango. Tango and Cash. Yeah, for example. Yeah, and then he would, uh, after his directing career kind of fizzled out, he went back to being a, uh, an editor again, still editing. That's amazing. And he's a, an amazing editor. And really, and it's one of those things where it's it's kind of sad to say, but... He's such an amazing editor who's edited so many amazing films that you love that are part of your, you know, in your top 100 films of all time. He's a much better editor than he ever was a director. And I'm sure he mm-hmm. probably wanted to direct, but editing was his calling, man. Yeah. And sometimes you just got to, you just kind of got to buckle down and go, dude, it's okay to be one of the best editors of all time. You don't have to also be a great director. Yeah, like, absolutely. Be the best at what you're the best at. But so this movie also has weird connections to our summer of 87 movies. Like, there's a lot of weird connections in here. This is the first of two movies this summer that will field, uh, that will have Richard Dawson in it. Uh, Richard Dawson keeps showing up in the background. Richard Dawson's in Lethal Weapon? He is constant. They, they keep, every time a TV is on, it's oh, on Family Feud. Okay. And right, so you right, hear right, Richard right. Dawson in the background. Also, in the background. Well, that's just him being ubiquitous for, like, three decades. But that's my point. Yeah. But yeah, but he, we're going to go from him appearing, so being so ubiquitous that he is the game show host we keep hearing in the background of Lethal Weapon, to being the game show host in a movie later this summer in Running Man. See if, oh, I was going to say, see if you can guess what movie we're talking about, which you would have. Yeah. Uh, another... One uh, one junkie summer of eighty seven movie appears in the background of this one, even though it's not out yet. Months before its release, you see Lost Boys, this summer's hit. Which, by the way, I feel like is also a reference to Back to the Future because they they say that like this year's hit and it's the Lost Boys. And if you remember, on the uh, the marquee of the the theater in Hill Valley in the eighties, I think it was. It was This Boy's Life, which was like the alternate title of E.T. So like just making references to producers, other movies. And, well, yeah, well, this was, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lost Boys was executively produced by Richard, by Donner. Richard Donner. So so, yeah, he was he was just putting his own movie. Uh, so uh, if you're if you're playing the junk food cinema Easter egg game, which that holiday is coming up, you have already picked out about six movies we're covering this summer. So start getting excited, guys. OK, and and just because. He was all over the place at this point, and he's a junk food alum that I love, but you really love. We've got fucking Tom Atkins. Tommy Atkins! In this movie. Who has the second best death of his entire career in this film. You think? Oh, yeah, second best. What do you think is still his best death? Uh, Thrill me, kaboom. Well, that's Absolutely. Like, not only for the, the scope of those effects and the ballsiness, but just the heroic nature of that death. But in this movie, he plays... 
okay, so the girl who died, her last name was Huntsacker. He plays Michael Huntsacker, her father, who is a banker who served with Murtaugh in the war. They were friends. They've kind of lost touch. They get back in touch over this. He is very adamant to Murtaugh. Like, you find out who is responsible. Because what they discover is that she was poisoned. There was poison in her system before she jumped, so even if she hadn't killed herself, she still would have died. So this becomes a murder investigation. And Tom Atkins tells Danny Glover, um, I don't care what you have to do. When you find the son of bitches responsible, you kill them. You kill them. Promise me you'll kill them. And so as this goes on, we start to learn that there's he's a little more involved than he was initially letting on. And what this all boils down to is a major heroin smuggling ring, which is hilarious to me that the big bad drug of this movie is heroin uh, because we can't slander the good name of cocaine. It has to be heroin that they're moving from Vietnam because it, it's the 80s and I'm Joel well, Silver. Also, and I can't, well, you know. no, no. Actually, I would, I would strongly disagree. That's why heroin is the drug. Heroin comes from that region and cocaine does not. We can get all the cocaine we want from Central America. Why would we fly it in from Vietnam? However, heroin is a different story. And Cargill her- revealing himself to be a different kind of junkie. Well, no, I mean, keep, <laughs> keep in mind that this is... I'm, this is all the, I was about to tie this in as well. It's another weird connection of this movie is that the villains in this movie are a bunch of black op guys who used to work with the CIA tied in with Air America. Now, part of what Air America did was ran heroin back and forth between the countries, and they used that to fund their other operations because the other thing Air America was doing and the reason why Air America wasn't so terrible was also doing all sorts of supply drops and getting uh, civilians in and out and taking people in and out of these various countries we weren't supposed to be going into. And the, the heroin trade was funding that. And so you had a bunch of guys who had been discharged from the military in different ways or were civilian pilots who were doing this stuff, working with a bunch of black ops guys. And so technically speaking, the bad guys in this movie were working alongside the Mel Gibson of the movie Air America, which he was also in with Robert Downey Jr., which is a cool fucking movie, uh, which is based on a really great book uh, that tells the true crazy adventures of these crazy fucking drunken fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants civilian pilots doing all this crazy shit. But essentially, the idea of this movie is that all a bunch of those guys got together and were still... 15 years later, using their contacts to fly out two major shipments of uh, heroin every year mm-hmm. to essentially fund this small private mercenary group to keep keep them together and still doing what they're doing. And, and the big bad of this movie uh, is just the general, played by Mitchell Ryan, who I will always remember as uh, when from... Curse of Michael Myers, the guy who introduces the whole cult. <laughs> and it's like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Oh, why'd Just, you remind me of Curse of Michael Myers? Oh, I don't know. It's well, because it's a movie that gave us Paul Rudd, at least. At least we got something good out of that festering turd pile that is the sixth Halloween uh, franchise installment. Um, but his second in command. Oh, God, yes. One of the best parts of this fucking movie. The Nicolas Cage of the 80s. The Nicolas Cage before Nicolas Nicolas Cage Cage went full Nicolas. No, (laughs) Nick Cage had not gone full Nick Cage at this point. Nick Cage only follows in the footsteps of this man. And this man is Gary Busey, who I feel... Post-accident Gary Busey. Who I feel 
in the room when he was being offered this was like, I'll only take this part if there's a scene where someone burns me. And it's like, why would you? Nope, sorry, that's my deal. Either someone burns me or not in this movie. And it's like, okay, I guess we got to burn him. Um, Is everybody okay with that? We're good. All right, you're in, Gary. Yeah, Busey is actually really, really good here. He is as Mr. Joshua as Mr. Joshua, who is both very controlled and very unhinged. Mm-hmm. Like he seems like a guy who's clearly nuts, but has enough willpower to keep him to to and enough restraint to keep himself from lashing out. But when he does, it's he's fucking brutal. Um, and wow, is he he's like the real villain here. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, it's kind of the James Bond situation where usually the the second in command is way more intimidating and imposing than the villain himself. He's the odd job. Yeah, he's yeah. the henchman. And he's, he's the Jaws. He's the odd job. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I like, like you said, that both villains and heroes come from the exact same place in this movie. And they kind of approach things very similarly, which is tactically, tactical brutality. Yeah. And it's it's so amazing to watch, especially when we get to that moment. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but it's lethal. It's weapon. lethal weapon. We Every, assume you've seen this like, movie. Seriously, if it's a movie you've never seen, you need to like you need to have shut this off a ways back yeah. and and just fucking sit down and watch lethal weapon because it's fucking lethal weapon. But that fight sequence at the end where Gary Busey and Mel Gibson are just beating the living hell out of each other. By the way, the most nonsensical fight sequence in most of these films. Like it really is a that this fight sequence is weird as much as I love this movie, the fight sequence is one of those where the only thing that carries it through is the performance of Mel Gibson and Gary Busey and the direction of Donner uh and Stuart Baird's editing because story-wise What's really, why are we concerned about a fist fight between two guys surrounded by 50 cops just watching? Like at any time, Gary Busey's going down. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, there's no real menace here. But the fight is so brutal and the way they commit and you've got this broken fucking, the brilliance of this broken fucking um, fire hydrant, fire hydrant, mm-hmm. raining water on there. So it's raining, but it's not raining. Um and just the lighting and just the way it's shot, you're just like, fuck, this fight hurts. And it's, it's, it is, it's just a great raw brutality. But story wise, you're like, the movie's over, dude. You don't need to keep fighting. Like, we got it. Oh, but him. they do. That's the thing. Both of those characters they do need to, to keep fighting because they have to prove which one is best. Well, that's, that's very much in the vein of the Vietnam parable. It's like people who came home from that war feeling like they still had a lot of fight left in them and like not really knowing what to do with it. And the problems that that caused after the fact, I love one thing I haven't, I haven't personally mentioned is I love Mel Gibson's performance in this movie. He is so committed to being the crazy one. And and it doesn't like at times it's cartoony, but you still believe that this guy would go to that cartoony level. And frankly, I kind of wish that we had all recognized that it was Mel Gibson shouting at us like, hey, guys, um, I'm really good at playing crazy, just so you know. it's uh, it's It was basically Riggs the whole time. That was That's the big M. Night Shyamalan twist of Mel Gibson's career. He was Riggs the whole time. Perhaps. That's, that's maybe a podcast for another day. That is a podcast for another day. But yeah, no, he was, <laughs> he's definitely... He's, he's, he definitely has that in him, and uh, it's really, it's so interesting what 
happened to Riggs over the course of this series. Mm -hmm. Because the thing is, is the it's weird. Like the meme of this movie is I'm getting too old for this shit. Yeah. Um, and yet it's the it's not the meme they lean on in this movie. Like the meme they lean on, their running gag is it's thin anorexic nothing there at all like they do that so many times during the movie that you're like that's supposed to be the joke of the movie well they hadn't set up the other running meme of the franchise yet which was the Riggs and Murtaugh do we go on three wait are we going on the go after three like they they kind of end up being way more comical together um as a duo instead of the comedy instead of the comedy being how different they are the comedy became how the two of them work versus how the rest of the police department worked so they kind of meld into one character as the franchise goes along which is so counter to how buddy cop movies are supposed to work yeah and yet i don't think there's a bad film in the lethal weapon franchise i think i mean there Have are you seen four i love four i think there are fours fours odd i think there are there are sillier entries there are entries that aren't as good but i don't think there's a bad film in this franchise and i think a lot of it is the fact that glover and and gibson carry this shit in a really i mean no matter what else is going on around them you are charmed by those two actors and you love those two characters i will say that um another big part of this movie and what really identifies a lethal weapon film beyond its cast is that there are two groups of cops in this film. Um, there is, of course, Murtaugh and Riggs. There is also Guitar and Sax, who are pursuing them this entire movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the guitar is fucking Eric Clapton. And then you've got the sax. I mean, this is very much a cool jazz 80s soundtrack, which is actually kind of fucking cool. No, it's great, but I mean, it is... It is prolific. Like, I thought fucking Careless Whisper was going to start up every five minutes. Like, that saxophone, it's like someone called in a 1054, officers pursued by sexy sax score. But, yeah, you're right. It's a cool score, but, like, that is... It is so prevalent that you know you're watching a Lethal Weapon movie even when neither Riggs nor Murtar are on screen because you will still hear the... Still hear the no, the weird thing I, I find about this series is that as it goes on, it keeps collecting characters and and can't leave them behind. It's yeah, like, it's like a fucking Marvel franchise. How do we fucking? Well, no, it's like oceans. It's like oceans thirteen, where it's like, hey, remember every character from this series? Well, they're going to show up at some well, point. Remember every male character from this series because we're fine dropping the women, says the ocean movies. Yeah, that is also true. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. but you're right. They pick up so many strays it's along like, the way. How can we fit Joe Pesci into this movie? How can we fit Rene Russo into this movie? Hey, why don't we just add Chris Rock? And Jet Li. Well, and Jet Li, the weird thing about Jet Li in the fourth film is that Uncle Benny was both the villain and the henchman in the fourth movie, and they wanted Jet Li, but Jet Li had not learned English yet and could not speak the lines. And so they needed to hire an actor that could speak the lines, so they divided up the parts. So Uncle Benny became all the lines of Jet Li, and Jet Li became his silent henchman. Which is so fucking cool in that movie. I'm sorry. That's one of the things I love the most about it. This is the era when we got pure Jet Li. Like I remember seeing the trailer for the fourth movie in the theater, 
and it comes up and it says and Jet Li and I'm like yeah and some redneck up in the front of the uh, the the theater goes who the fuck is Jet Li and I'm just like oh you will know one day you will know and we knew I'm gonna stop you that redneck still doesn't know he never learned I don't know (laughs) he might have seen we put Jet Li in a bunch of movies for a while and then all of the Chinese actors that we had come over from Hong Kong were like Hollywood is just fucking us over we're going home and making more money there and so they all left like we there was a time in this country when you could walk into a theater and have an A-list movie starring an Asian actor and then they all just went home because we kept making bad movies with them or we kept fucking them over on money and so we lost we lost our Jet Li movies. There was a hot minute when we got Jet Li movies. When we could have a movie that ends, uh, uh, I am not your bitch, you are mine. And then Jet Li would fight 100 guys on top of a pyramid. And it's like, fuck yeah. What was that one called? The One. Yeah, the one we're talking about. What was the it called? One. I know, the One Jet Li movie the we're talking one. about. No, what was it called? The One. Yes, the title of that one. The One. Okay, you know what? We'll figure it out later. We'll IMDb it. Um, quick check-in uh, with Joel Silver. Richard, I just want to say th- I think you're doing a very wonderful job on this movie, and I, I can't for the life of me figure out why the Salkins would have fired you off Superman 2. What's that? Oh, thank you. No, I'll pass on that drink. Got to stay sober out here. So uh, oh, so I see this is a bit that we're working up to. No, okay. no, there are no bits. There is only Zool. Um, but as, as we go along in this movie, like the action sequences, I think uh, it's so great to see this dynamic at work where Murtaugh is just trying to fucking get through the day and and figure this case out and at every step he is in over his head like the level of of trouble that they get into just keeps escalating like early on in the film they go to this this mansion that's obviously a, a drug dealer's house and they're just standing in the backyard when someone fucking open opens fire on them and it's like shit that was crazy and then all of a sudden there's a helicopter assassinating fucking Tom Atkins in the middle of a meeting <laughs> That's crazier. Oh, no, now my daughter's been kidnapped, and we have this this exchange in the desert with helicopters and snipers and fucking grenades, and it's like, I bet you Murtaugh, prior to butting up with Riggs, has never seen any any case as insane as this one. Yeah, uh, let's just for a moment pause on how fucking cool a closing they have here. Um, the most memorable scene in any Lethal Weapon movie pretty much comes from the end of two because the climax of two is the one where it's the perfect combination of 80s um, punchline death with great cinematography. And, you know, you've got that great thing on the the boat with diplomatic immunity. Um, But here that was at one time granted the title of best ending line of all time, but it's just been revoked. I was saying balloons. So something else took its place. But this primary climax, like this this scene where we have that shootout in the desert, is one of the craziest concepts in any buddy cop movie. Where here's the plan. I'm going to drop my crazy ex- uh, black ops sniper partner off in the desert. He's going to run off and get a position. And then he's just going to start picking off bad guys. And then I'm going to throw a smoke grenade and grab my daughter and just start shooting at everyone. Like, it is such a violent fucking 
shootout. And yet it's not the end of the fucking movie. Like we aren't even <laughs> we aren't even at the actual climax. It's the climax before the climax. This, this is, movie this is, is tantric with its violence. Yeah, it's and the thing is, is it feels like it's the 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 climax, but it's not because they end up getting captured. Uh after they like pick off a bunch of these fucking guys. But I also love how they set that up perfectly where uh, um, uh, you have, you know, you kind of wonder how does one black op guy match up against 20 black ops guys? Like, what is that? Well, of course you have this great moment where Riggs is walking with the general. He's like, I remember you. Uh, I ran into a bunch of your, uh, your black ops pussies back in Don Yang in 69. And you realize that Riggs is so much more badass than any of these generals men, which is what they're going to use to explain how he kills all of them. And that's, that's the other part of the dynamic that I think works so well is that Riggs, Riggs may be crazy and Riggs may be damaged psychologically, but he is deus ex action movie in that if you let him off the chain, in some cases literally in this movie, everybody's going to fucking die. It's like Jet Li and Unleashed. As soon as he's let go, everyone in that room is going to die. I don't care if you got a gun, have, a rocket launcher, a machete. It doesn't matter. Have we done Danny the Dog yet? Oh, we will. Don't you worry. Take I, I just can't remember if we had done it yet. We have not. We have not done Unleashed slash Danny the Dog and we definitely will. But again, Mel Gibson in this movie, and it became a parody. Like, the amount of violence in this movie and his proficiency at it, there's a great Simpsons episode where Mel Gibson's the guest star, and he's trying to get Homer to help write him a movie where he doesn't have to kill people because he feels like Hollywood's pigeonholed him as the guy who kills people all the time. So they try to remake Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and then they just end up doing a version where Mr. Smith kills everybody in the That's rotunda. That's kind of Shane Black's thing, though. Like, yeah. Shane Black, it's two misfits thrown together. They get involved in a mystery. The mystery is actually a giant fuck-all conspiracy. The conspiracy goes much deeper and much darker than they thought, and it ends up with our two guys killing everybody. Everybody. Killing everybody. And that becomes a trope of this entire franchise, and it's one I am a-okay with. Incidentally... Mel Gibson is perfect as Riggs. Mel Gibson was this. There's a lot of parallels, again, as we said at the beginning of the show, between Die Hard and Lethal Weapon, not just the people involved with it, but the one of the one of the many people originally offered the role of Riggs was Bruce Willis. And oddly enough, when it came time to do Die Hard, one of the first people offered the role of John McClane was Mel Gibson. They turned down each other's roles, which is really interesting to me. Well, also, was it was it wasn't the first person offered Die Hard actually Frank Sinatra? Frank Sinatra. Yeah, and there's man, I could do a whole podcast on the history of the making of it is fascinating. Like, and there, it was a con, it was a contractual thing. They had to wrap your head around this. Joel Silver had to offer Frank Sinatra the role of John McClane if he was going to make the movie. He was bound before that thing even went into production to offer the role of John McClane to crooner Frank Sinatra. Um, yeah, and you know, Shane Black... I can't, I can't wait till 20 years from now when, the, when they have to make action movies. Like, they have to offer Fast and Furious 20 to Justin Timberlake. Yeah. You know, I know this Shane Black kid isn't totally happy with the rewrites we did on this, but I, you know, as a producer, I'm confident we're, we're going to meet in the middle. That's just me. That's, that's who I am as a producer. I'm not always my way or the highway. I'm not the... Oh, hey, what's that white powder? Um... Hi, Joel Silver. Hi, Joel Silver. So, other than Bruce Willis, some other people are, people offered the role of Martin Riggs, who turned it down, are as follows. Kurt Russell, 
Patrick Swayze, Michael Keaton, Christopher Reeve, Harrison Ford, Liam Neeson, Pierce Brosnan, Kevin Costner, Michael Douglas, Richard Gere, Sean Penn, Christopher Lambert, Michael Norrie from last week's The Hidden, Richard Norton, Charlie Sheen, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Alec Baldwin. Every single one of them turned it down. How does that happen? This, this, like, I understand some people don't have, you, you can't always know from looking at something on the page whether it's going to be a hit. I get that. How do that many people turn down this role with no concept that it might possibly be a big hit? Well, I think it may have something to do with what was happening at the time. Um, you know, there, we had seen, we, we talked about this a lot last summer, uh, for those of you that didn't catch, uh, catch that, um, we, uh, talked about the fact that, you know, this is Reagan's America. And at this point we're deep in Reagan's America. We're deep in the conservative backlash against what happened in the seventies and the early eighties. We've got this very, you know, this idea that, you know, this anti-war thing that's been going on is not necessarily the way we should be going. The hatred of government, this is an, a time of optimism, not a time of pessimism. And this is a pessimistic as fuck movie. This is not a happy-go-lucky movie. You're playing, you're, you're being offered the role of an action hero who keeps putting a gun in his mouth, who carries a hollow point bullet around because he wants to blow his own brains out. Make sure he does the job right. Who was a hero in... Vietnam and can't deal with the shit that he did to become a hero because he doesn't think of himself as a hero. This is a very, this is one of those 80s anti-heroes that is going off in a very weird direction. He does lots of things he shouldn't be doing. He should not be a cop. There are several things he does in this movie that you know, in this day and age, if we had a protagonist who would be like, dude, what the you're a cop. What the fuck are you doing? You just jumped off a roof yeah. handcuffed to a guy who was going to commit suicide. Yeah, they inflated a thing down there. But Jesus Christ, what if he missed? Yeah. What the fuck? You could have killed that. Well, guy. and I love I love Danny Glover, like performance wise. My favorite moment of the whole movie is when he is so frustrated, furious and confused by Riggs that right after he does that jump, he's just like, you come here. And they just walk like 10 feet over and he's like. Now come here! Like he he's so angry and freaked out by what he just saw, he can't I, hold it together. Oh, dude! And the way Danny Glover throws that door, he slams a, he, a door and it flips all the way back. And it's just and it's just like shit. He's he's in that fucking moment. Yeah. No, Danny Glover is great. Like Mel Gibson gets all the credit here because he has the damaged character, and Danny Glover is the very grounded character. But Glover. This is Glover's role. This is what Glover will be remembered for is playing Murtaugh. Yeah. Um, and Murtaugh's always great in kind of a comical way because he's so very real. He is so an everyman. He, he is the ultimate straight man. Yeah. He is just like his daughter mentions he's got a little gray in his beard and he's finally looking his age. And so he shaves it into a mustache and it's the eighties and everybody's like the mustache actually makes you look older. And like, it's like, I can't fucking win. Like he got a boat and he's planning on retiring and sailing around with the boat. And he knows nothing about fucking boats. Yeah. Um, you might say he's rudderless much like his Mel Gibson. This from the obvious metaphor department. Oh, and Brian. It's true. Oh, Brian. It's true. Brian. And Brian. hilariously enough. Brian. What? <laughs> Finish a sentence, goddammit. Um, coincidentally, the script for Die Hard with a Vengeance, just to connect these two movies again, 
uh, was written as a Lethal Weapon sequel. And when you watch that movie, you oh, can oh, totally yeah. see it. That's what Zeus is. Yeah, Zeus was basically just Danny Glover, was Murtaugh. And, and ironically, Bruce Willis becomes the crazy rogue cop who's a wild card. The role he fucking... He is Martin Riggs in a Die Hard sequel, the role he turned down before Die Hard. That's pretty hilarious. Also, another connection to the wide, wide world of Summer of 87. Do you know who was supposed to play Mr. Joshua initially before Gary Busey? No. John motherfucking Saxon. Oh, that would have been... And guess why he couldn't do it? Why? Because he was filming a little movie called Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors. Yes. So take a little drink. Right now. Oh, because that's coming up, baby. We got, we got. That's on the docket. By the way, this is our catch-up month. This is our, we're catching up with all the stuff that we would wanted to talk about in the early year before we get into full-on summer, because these were all pre-summer releases. Yes, but as the uh, theatrical release of Fate of the Furious this week has taught us, the summer season now extends from about April to September uh, at the the multiplex. Oh, dude, they, they try to do it with March. Yeah, they they they've tried to do it with March. The hunt the Hunger Games movies tried to do that, um, but it summer officially movie wise summer starts in April and goes yeah. to September. So that's why we're doing it this way as well. So I have a question, Cargo. What is your favorite? Because we talked about how seminal this movie is. What is your favorite Lethal Weapon knockoff? What is your favorite movie that came after Lethal Weapon that was trying to sort of recapture what it is that made Lethal Weapon great? Because prior to doing my research, I would have said Die Hard with a Vengeance. And then when I found out that that script started life as a Lethal Weapon sequel, I was like, well, that seems a bit like cheating. And I think I know what yours is. Okay, I'm curious what you think mine is. I think yours is Bad Boys. Yeah, uh, no, Bad Boys 2. Oh, there it is, of course. Bad Boys 2 of is course than it's Bad, Bad Boys, Boys 2. Of course you would say that. Um, I well, do. What do you mean? Of course, that's the greatest car chase yeah. of all time. You, 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 you've said that before. Um, uh, and I'm right. You, you have said that before. Bad Boys is high up on my list, actually, of great Lethal Weapon knockoffs. Um, I think one of the worst Lethal Weapon knockoffs might be Collision Course, starring Pat Morita, Mr. Miyagi, and Jay Leno. That oh, is yeah. a movie no, that, that, that exists. Yeah, that's, that is, but, but that felt, I think that's came out at about the same time. I don't know that's, that's so much a knockoff of that as it's a 48 hours knockoff. Yeah, yeah. Collision Course came out in 89. Oh, yeah. Um, no, so, yeah, that is more Lethal Weapon. Um, I would, you know, one of my, one of my other favorites, it, as terrible as it is, I, I, I love the humor of it. A Loaded Weapon 1. Um, yeah. The actual parody. Um, National Lampoon's Loaded Weapon 1. And not only that, but another movie that could be considered the worst Lethal Weapon knockoff that is also one of my favorites because I like terrible things, Dead Heat. Well, Dead Heat is... Dead Heat's just great. Um, <laughs> Dead Heat is its own thing. Oh, another one from that era, Red I'm sorry. Heat. I'm sorry. Yes. A tagline for this entire podcast could be, well, Dead Heat is just great. And just leave that up there. If we had a poster... It's got one of my favorite final lines in movie history. Which one is that? What, uh, uh, if there's such thing as reincarnation, I hope I come back as a lady's bicycle seat. That's right. Because Joe Piscopo says that line. As they're walking off into the light. Because Joe Piscopo is, is a thing that happened to that all happened, of us in the yeah. 80s. But both Dead Heat and Red Heat are kind of crazy knockoffs. Man, uh, that would be a double feature, wouldn't it? Dead Heat and Red Heat? Uh, the, Doctor, the Dr. Seuss uh, lethal weapon... Double feature? Yeah, I, I could get behind that. What was the... I'm I'm trying to think. You know what I think one of the worst of these are? What was it called? Chill Zone or Chill... 
Chill Factor. Chill Factor where with they, Skeet Ulrich and Cuba Gooding Jr. Where they're uh, they're trapped in the yeah where they're trapped in the ice cream truck. Let me stop you. If the movie's not Scream and Skeet Ulrich is in it, don't watch that movie. That's not true. Name it. Uh Newton Boys. Okay. Yes, the Newton Boys fucking great. I mean, yeah, that's Link Ladder, but that's like, and it's great Link Ladder. That's like saying the only reason you watch Young Guns is for Lou Diamond. You Phillips. said if he's in it, don't watch it, and you asked me to prove it, and I just fucking proved it. All right, I've been lawyered by the world's worst lawyer. Lawyered, lawyered. So yeah, if you haven't, yeah, Chill seen- Factor is, pro- but Chill Factor is like kind of Lethal Weapon meets Speed. So I mean, that's clearly no, what no, that's that Lethal is. Lethal Weapon on Speed, I think, is what you meant to say. What do you say, Jack? Would you like a shot at the title? So that is Lethal Weapon, uh, a classic. No matter how you slice it, absolutely phenomenal. And like I said before, I don't think there's a bad film in this franchise, but Lethal Weapon does stand alone because it feels so much different, both in terms of the the darkness of the tone, what they do with the characters in this one. Um, and yeah, no, I, I love it. Before we move on to the junk food pairing, we pulled a massive boner last week. Uh-oh. We have not actually owned up to our boner yet. Uh, oh, yeah. God. With, okay, no, no. I'm going to stop you right there. I pulled a boner. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm going to say. I ate entire brownie pans full of shit for this. Oh, yeah. And I'm sorry, guys. That's why we have to acknowledge it. I am sorry. Like, the, the hair splitting that is going on for this. And I, like, got bombarded every fucking where to the point that I actually had to post a Newsies gift saying, hey, everyone, remain calm. Okay, guess what? Lynn Shay is Bob Shay's sister, not his wife. Are we all good now? Can we let it the fuck go? Dude, we fucked up. We That's fucked up. That's fine, but... Don't be defensive about it. No, we fucked up. I'm only we defensive deserve, about we it. We deserve getting kicked in People the People act, acted like we said Casablanca was directed by John R. Leonetti or something. It was ridiculous, the amount of, like, massive, like, uh, hey, guys, just so you know. Okay, now we know. Knowing is half the battle, and we lost it. I hope I, you're fucking happy. I personally think that Brian deserved all the abuse he got, even though I was the one that said it, and it's my fault. Yeah. So I'm sorry, guys. Boy, did I fuck up on that one. And uh, I'm sure we will fuck up more in the future to give you more reason to yell at Brian. And also thank you for letting us know when we make an error. I do appreciate it. We actually do. Because that was that was really knucklehead. I had always heard that it was the other way around. And uh, uh, nobody ever corrected that whenever I heard it or said it before. And uh, this time I said it on mic. And yeah, that was uh, that was dunderheaded. Oh, actually, before we go, we uh, have one more visit here from current Joel Silver. I'm going to make these fucking movies forever. Lethal Weapon 7, Lethal Weapon in Space. I'm too old for this ship, right, Danny? <laughs> why haven't we seen that movie? I don't why don't why we have Lethal that. Weapon in Space? I, I have no idea. I want Lethal Weapon in Space. Hey, hey, Joel, why don't you uh, have Shane start working on that and please put down the cat. I'm not sure what good that's going to do you. And that brings us to the junk food pairing, which uh, this week I went with Nutty Bars because... Riggs and Murtaugh are that combination that goes together like chocolate and peanut butter. And much like the two of them, Nutty Bars was not the first treat to combine chocolate and peanut butter. However, it is one that for me as a kid kind of was a game changer. And Nutty Bars also, the word nut bar is also a really great way to describe someone who is Riggs level crazy. And also, if you really wanted to get into the spirit of this movie, they are gun barrel shaped. So grab a couple of nutty bars and play chocolate finger guns. Nutty bars. This week's junk food pairing. You know what? I'm going to back you up on that. This oh, week. my goodness. Because you know what? As a grown ass man, 
you are too old for this shit. <laughs> oh, I thought it was going to go one place and then it went another. And uh, you should eat them and, and just be like, man, I could be eating adult food right now, but I'm too old for this shit. This from the guy who would join me at gyms at two o'clock in the morning almost every week for decidedly not adult food. Yeah. Jeez, Mr. I fucking moved across town so I can't go to fucking gyms anymore for a chicken tender basket. Well, the the terms of the restraining order clearly stipulated I could no longer be within 500 feet of that restaurant, the owners, or their family. Look, I don't have a lot of time to get into it, so we'll just go ahead and end this episode. Thank you so much for joining us for the, the inaugural kickoff, or just kickoff because that's redundant to say, the kickoff of Summer of 87. One Junkie Summer is back, and I could not be more excited. I am jazzed about the shit we're covering. Oh, you're so jazzed about next week. Oh, next week, yeah. Yeah, I've got... We've got a guest next week. We've got Greg, Greg McLennan is on. Um, it is a, I have to watch this movie again. I have not watched this movie in 25 years. I have not liked this movie. So will I be turned around? We will find out. But this is one of those rare instances when we both don't go, yes, let's absolutely do this. You're just like, fuck you. We're doing it. Greg is coming on. We're doing this fucking show. We're going to see if Cargill gets turned around like a trucker hat. For over the top, yes, over the top. I'm so excited. Yeah, one of the worst movies that I love them. Like on the vind- on the uh, on the axis of like badness of movie to how much I love it. This one is in that that sweet spot right in the top right corner. So join us next week for that. Until then, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Junk Food Cinema. Remember to like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash Junk Food Cinema. And remember to rate and review us on iTunes. And please consider becoming a patron. There is no better time to be a patron than right now. Between Summer of 87, the uh, Summer of 77 miniseries just for patrons, and the Alamodes, we are covering a solid four decades of junkie genre films yeah i don't know what else to say for as little as four bucks a month you can get access to all of that stuff come on guys keep the lights on here for we really would appreciate it one movie rental one movie rental you can get multiple hours of this of entertainment you keep me from sitting alone in the dark putting nutty bars in my mouth and, and contemplating pulling the chocolatey trigger and Cargo, where can people find you on the interwebs? You can find me on Twitter at MassaWorm, M-A-S-S-A-W-Y-R-M, or at Facebook, Facebook.com slash MassaWorm. All right, you can find me on Twitter at Salisbury, or my Facebook page is Facebook.com slash Critic. And as we close the episode, remember, no matter where you are, no matter where you go, how successful you become, you are never, ever too old for this shit. <laughs>